What's going on guys, my name is Al De Niro and welcome to episode 105 of the Midnight Hour. There is a guest on this episode, however, it was a much shorter conversation than I wanted to have originally and we actually didn't even get to the one topic that I wanted to talk about. So uh, the song opening the show here is called Aeroplane by a band called Luca Brazzi. They're an Australian punk rock band and the reason being that you know, the guest is Australian today, the first ever Australian guest on the show, um, and he is an old friend of mine. I will introduce him in a little bit. I want to get to a few of your questions first, um, because I said I would do a Q&A. I never got around to it, and I have a much shorter episode than usual here, so I figure I might as well just spend some time in the intro um, answering some questions that you guys asked. Not a lot. I'm only going to do like two or three of these things, but... Um, yeah, Luca Brazzi, they're this uh, th- this really cool Australian punk band. Um, they're not like reinventing the wheel or anything like that, but they definitely have a good sound. And there's some really cool bands coming out of Australia at the moment that I was thinking maybe in the future of noise pollution, uh, which is a side podcast that I have planned, um, where I would just talk about bands from different countries that I like. And I, like, there's quite a few... Um, bands from Australia that I could talk about all in the one episode and it's weird because they're all of different styles but I think Australian bands have this very um, kind of bleak ironic look at the world which I find quite interesting how consistent it is Um, you take a band like Camp Cope who are this uh, I think they're an all-girl group um, and they have these songs that are like about how about being utterly miserable in a world where everyone else is happy and just looking at the world through that lens. And then there's someone like Courtney Barnett, who she might actually be from New Zealand. I might be stepping in a huge hole here. But uh, her music is also just really sarcastic. And um, it also has just a really skewed look at the world. It's just really interesting how music from that region uh, is is kind of coming out that way predominantly. Well, at least in my experience anyway. So... Um, yeah, that's that pretty much. I asked for questions on Twitter. If this is something you guys are interested in participating in, uh, do feel free to send me a tweet. It's twitter.com slash eldenero 90 for anyone who doesn't know. Um, there was a question that I, I really wanted to get to. Uh, where is it? Let me see. Can I find it? Um, from Fionn McGinnis, who says, thoughts on that Jordan Peterson Channel 4 video. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jordan Peterson. He, he's sort of like a, a cultural commentator. Um, he's, uh, his actual occupation and his training is in clinical psychology. Um, it's something that he's quite clearly very good at. Whenever you hear him talk, you know this guy definitely knows his stuff. Um, people on the left like to say that he's an idiot, he's a pseudo-intellectual, he hasn't a clue what he's on about. Um, people on the right kind of have warmed to him because he's one of the only people making statements comparing... Um, the actions of people on the far left with the actions of people on the historical far left from an authoritarian point of view. So Jordan Peterson is very anti-communist and very... Um, so he he's um, studied everything about like Stalinism and Marxism and everything. And uh, he has some warnings for anyone who thinks that communism can work. And uh, I think for that reason, people on the left like to target him as someone on the right. I don't know. We're involved in this fucking ridiculous culture war that's so annoying. And I myself find myself disagreeing with some things Jordan Peterson says. Um, and when I actually analyze it, it's mostly mostly an emotional response to him. Uh, like, um, 
there there is no doubt that this guy would absolutely slaughter me in a debate of course so um anyway listen i i quite like the guy my first introduction to jordan peterson was this conversation that he had with sam harris and it is like within this world if you're familiar with any of these people uh this conversation was by all means horrendous and um terrible to listen to i actually enjoyed listening to it to be honest um but jordan peterson has this sort of um really interesting worldview about sort of um how could i explain it in a lot of what he says sounds very complicated but he's really interested in um people having like um archetypes and people following stories and and he believes that mythology has a sense of truth to it because it's just there are stories that get retold in different generations and with under different guises and things like that so he was on channel four uh with kathy newman and she uh, like just like just watch this just type in jordan peterson channel four or jordan peterson kathy newman whatever um and watch this interview right and and just before you even hear me talk just watch the video make up your own mind and see what you think because i really think that this is a great example of some kind of um some kind of test for what way you lean on certain issues right so um anyone remember that dress that was like it was either gold and white or else it was blue and black depending on like literally your eyesight and the types of colors you had been exposed to all your life or whatever um so some people thought it was gold and white some people thought it was blue and black right some people think in this interview that um kathy newman was perfectly reasonable asked perfectly reasonable questions and that jordan peterson um was uh, stubborn uh he was rude uh, and stuff like that um most people see it as kathy newman just trying really hard to pin these um red flags on jordan peterson that should uh, you know uh, discount him from the public consensus uh, she tried to tar him as a member of the alt-right which is just frankly ludicrous and um, she tried to act as though he believes that all women should stay at home in the kitchen where they belong just she took everything that he said out of context uh, and basically he would make this point that's you know nuanced and uh, and complex and it would point to the various factors that make up one issue and then she would say so you're saying that women should stay at home in the kitchen and it was just crazy i couldn't believe what i was watching but he handled it really well and i think um one of the things that kind of turned me away from jordan peterson a little bit is that he often goes off on these tangents where he invokes imagery of mythology and and like um biblical verses and things like that and i don't really have any interest in that but i find that when he's being concise when he's backed into a corner he's really really good at coming out swinging without breaking any rules and uh that's what i think of that video um i also realize that i am criticizing him for um overextending on certain points and i feel like i've been doing that since i started talking here so (laughs) anyway um a couple of people um alex and uh dan asked about tips on handling exams and exam stress and things like that uh listen i'm not the person to answer this i was um i just messaged dr john there unfortunately he can't actually come online to um i was i was going to try and get him to give his insight here because the the dude is a doctor who has um been in the education system for some 10 years um but anyway i i didn't do well on my exams at all i don't even put my exam results on my cv um i without a doubt have the 
lowest rate of achievement amongst any of my friends. Uh, like I, I think I, I don't know if there is, I don't know within my circle of friends if there is a greater academic underachiever than me. I have done terribly in exams. I never tried. Um, I, I never cared. I was just never something that I could um, just act in the way that they wanted you to act, right? Exams are a game and you have to play the game. Uh, the, the only thing I'll say is I did get an A in Honours English, which is like my most, one of my biggest accomplishments because I, I did not really even study. It was really just the fact that I just happened to be naturally good at it um, that saw me true. But um, one of the things I did there in the build-up to the exam was that I looked at the the questions on the previous papers. You can look at the history of exam questions that are asked. And um, ultimately what you want to do there is look at the way that the points are divided out. So like if, if one question is worth 80 points and then the next one is 180 points, prioritize the next one. Go for the points. Try and play the game where you're just trying to rack up as many points as possible, like a football team. Like... Like say, you know, Leicester City have a really tough away run coming up um, and they have, uh, you know, they can get a maximum of 12 points from uh, from four games, obviously. And, you know, they'd be happy to come away with nine. So if they could get even they would even take, you know, two wins and two draws to make it eight points, say something like that. That's how you have to approach the exam is like, how many points can I claw out of each section here? Um in order to enhance my grade and and things like that. And then when, when, once you start doing that and getting good at that, you start looking at the amount of points and you can kind of figure out how they're divided up. So if there's a question on the English exam that says, explain, uh, you know, say a reading comprehension, it's like explain how the writer described this. And if, it, if it's 12 points, then think of it as it probably wants you to make three different points and it will give you four points for each one. So it's four, eight, 12, kind of added up like that. That's the Irish education system. Listen, I can't comment on the English one. I don't really understand how it works. So apologies for any foreign listeners. But um, people have been asking me about how to handle stress for exams for, you know, six years or so. So this is obviously something that is coming up time and time again. So I'd really like to get someone onto the podcast to actually talk about that. And if you guys could suggest anyone, um, I'd be like, I'd be really happy to invite someone on because it's, it's definitely something that I'd like to help with. And unfortunately, it's something that I know nothing about. I just, I've, I've never had to go through the struggle of it because I never wanted to, um, which leads into the next question nicely, I think, um, from, uh, from a guy called Moore who says how to deal with the fear of uncertainty. And this is, um, this is something that I've actually gotten pretty good at recently um, over the last couple of years, I'd say. Um, one of the things that I am very bad at is visualizing the future. I, I don't even take the future into account when I do anything at all. Like I, I would never, I get my wages and I never think, right, I'll set this amount aside for, like I, I just don't do that at all. Like the money that's in my account is like, that might as well be a bottomless well for me that I can just pull from for all my life. Like that's the way my brain works, it's crazy. Um, so one of the things that you have to do to deal with uncertainty is to start visualizing things. And my best example that I have for this is job interviews. Um, I'm really good at job interviews. Like I, I kind of have like a, a good ability to think on the spot, uh, which can lead me out of tricky questions and stuff like that. I, I can be very good at saying a lot of words without actually saying anything at all, but it sounds good in the meantime. And, you know, people have to go home, write it down and read it before they realize that I've actually said nothing at all. Um, but anyways, uh, dealing with uncertainty is about 
visualizing the things that you're uncertain about to try and map them into reality and one of the ways that I did that was with job interviews by um, so I would google like what questions do people ask the most on job interviews and from doing that you just you know read the questions and then when you're lying in bed you know 15 minutes before you go to bed just imagine what it would be like if someone asked you that I don't don't even read it off a page or anything just visualize yourself walking into a room sitting down and the person saying so tell me about this and what your answer would be the more you do that the more you kind of naturally train yourself to be able to deal with these circumstances when they actually occur in reality um one of my uh one of my things that i tell my friends to do is uh, start visualizing your interview before you go in and act as if it's already happened, right? So in, in your head, every everybody does this to some extent, right? You know, you have, say, someone says something to you, some cutting remark that really, like, makes you feel like shit, and then you come home and you think of the perfect comeback, and you're like, fuck, I should have said that. So don't say that, right? Actually say it in your head and then say, yeah, that, that was a really good comeback. I really got that guy there. So, like, you're, you're visualizing it even though it hasn't actually happened, Um but once you start to do that, I think things become a little bit more certain and you feel a little bit more prepared. It's kind of a vague and shitty answer, I know, but um, it's something that I'm working on. This is another thing that I asked um, I asked John if he had any insights, and obviously he did, but they were very nuanced and philosophical and things that I would rather let him discuss. So, um, But thanks for the question, because uh, it's basically give me an idea for a whole new podcast. And I think uncertainty and exam stress really tie into each other because part of the reason that you're stressed about the exams is that you don't know what's coming up uh, and it could be anything. So you have to have so much information in your head and that's going to take its toll on you mentally because you're you're jamming in information at the expense of other things. Um, but I'll tell you this, my, my audience is predominantly male. Uh, men are really good at cramming for exams. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know if there's any biological reason for that or if, if that's purely observation. But um, that's, you know, uh, just cram <laughs> as much as you can. Um, and that will like eventually see you true. If you have information in your head that's really recent, then you'll be able to spit it out easier. So... Um, I think we'll, I think I might leave the Q and A there. Um, there, there are a couple more questions that are really compelling, but I will get to them another time. Um, I want to introduce my guest. I also want to say, uh, listen, you guys all know that the midnight hour is different to how it used to be. There's kind of a different guest every week. You never know what the topic might be. It's less funny. I know that it's less funny. Um, I, it's partly because I really just want to talk to people. Um, I've been having just really good conversations with people that I like old friends that I've started talking to over the last while and I always come away from it thinking like shit I should have recorded that like people would have liked to have listened to that so I know that the midnight hour listenership is divided into several components so there are people who enjoy everything um there are people who only like the episodes with certain guests on and there are people who um really don't like when we talk about certain topics and then there are the weird people in the alt-right who listen to me <laughs> and, and like I don't know why you are listening when you know that you're going to be sickened by every single thing that I have to say um but anyway uh one thing I just want to say is that people who I have brought on the show are not uh, like professional podcasters I, I there's probably like one person ever to appear on the show that this has been natural to and that's Nepenthes and the only reason it's natural to him is because he's a YouTuber like there's there's no one else even Steve 
who you would think like intuitively this guy's been through loads of interviews and stuff like that like steve has never sat down for an hour and a half with a journalist interviewing him or anything like th- this is new um podcasting is new every like you know um when Jack and Lucemore first started, it was their first ever appearance on a podcast. And the same for um, the original Jack, who who I started the podcast with. So, like, no one is good at this, naturally. And when people come on, one of the things they always say to me is, I can't wait to read the comments. And I know that there aren't many comments, but if you are leaving a comment, if you could just try and be nice. Like, don't say, like, the first negative thought that comes into your head about someone. Um, If someone makes a point that you don't agree with, like, leave the reasons as to why. And, like, you can disagree with someone and still have a pleasant conversation. I actually think that the next episode of this will be something like that. I'm planning on having a little bit of a debate with someone um, in the next episode, which should be interesting. Um, But, yeah, when people come on here... Uh, they know they're going to be listened to by at least hundreds of people and the first thing that you do when you do anything in front of people is you try and evaluate it in your head to see how you did and the only way of regulating that kind of evaluation on YouTube is by the comments so um, if if you could just like be pleasant <laughs> to people I would really appreciate it like 99% of you are so I don't want to sound like a school teacher here but just keep, maybe keep that in mind because I want to encourage people to come on the show and I want it to be a thing that um, that they enjoy and I want to incentivize people to come back so um, with that in mind uh, my guest today is an old friend of mine named Saxon it's pretty much the coolest name ever um, he is Australian although he's actually originally Eng- English so he's not a not a true Australian um, but anyway I wanted to talk about um, the differences between Europe and Australia because he now lives in Europe um, I didn't actually get to that at all because he's a journalist so I started talking to him about journalism a little bit um, so we only had about 45 minutes which is just not really long enough for a full episode I don't think um, so I don't know I, I hope you guys still find it interesting because he is a guy who has moved to another country and I know that that's a subject that really interests a lot of you I know it's a thing that a lot of you want to do and I've had so many questions on it in the past so um his Twitter will be linked in the description, no matter what platform you're listening on. So click that and give him a follow. Um, other than that, there's not really anything else to say. So let's get into the episode. Power can stop me. So I'm joined today by Sax. How's it going, man? I'm good. I'm good, Elder. How are you? I'm pretty well. Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. It's uh, it's been a long time since we spoke, and uh, I've been really excited to sort of talk about everything that you've been doing with your life because it looks like it's a lot more interesting than mine at the moment. So I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not. Uh, we'll see. Um, so you're obviously Australian, as everyone will probably be able to tell by your accent. Um, what part of Australia are you from? Um, so I was actually born in England, uh, in Norwich. Yeah. Uh, I lived there for the first eight years of my life, but I moved to Australia, West Coast Australia, so Perth, um, when I was about 11 years old and I've been there, or I was there until about last year, 
for about 12 or so years and currently about 22 years old. Jeez, do people in Australia recognize any English in your accent? Um, it depends what I say. Um, right. I, like, compared to some very, like, very Australian Australians, I probably don't sound very Australian, but uh, it depends on the words. Like, some words I pronounce differently. Like, uh, I don't even know if I've got an example off the top of my head, but mm. um, you can tell some in my words and if you concentrate on my speech enough, but, yeah, I think I'm fairly convincing. You sound incredibly Australian to me. <laughs> you sound like the most Australian person that I've ever spoken to. So that's uh, that's something. So um, uh, well, I was going to ask you about, um, I don't know if you have any experience with this or whatever, but like, so pretty much half of Ireland now lives in Australia. Have you noticed that at all? Um, not particularly. I mean, Australia is a country of immigrants. Yeah, um, yeah. And Australia is also a very big country. Um, not particularly. I mean, uh, on the West Coast, you get a lot of, like, suburbs where there is a particular cultural group. So, for example, uh, the northern suburbs of Perth are mainly English-dominated. And, I mean, I can, tell, I can say this with confidence, having played soccer in leagues for a few years, and you go up to a, a club and it's an English club or it's an Italian club with Portuguese or Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, you know, whatever the club yeah, is yeah. i haven't not too many irish people that's interesting um we have like i i have spoke about this a little bit before but i think ireland is a very self-deprecating nation like our media kind of hates us and the way that we act abroad and things like that even though most countries are actually really welcoming to the irish and we have like a great reputation which to be honest we don't even deserve at all because we're just as as bad as the english but a lot of people think the English go abroad and they're savages and barbarians, but the Irish go abroad and they're just a great laugh. And it's not always entirely true that way, but we get these um, articles from Australian media creeping into our media about how Irish people behaved despicably uh, at some like national event where like Australians are just having fun drinking and Irish people are just too drunk and everything. So... Um, I'm kind of glad that that hasn't been your experience because I don't I don't know I, I hate the idea of an entire country thinking oh those Irish guys they're a bunch of cunts so um, uh, I think Irish people have got a fairly good rep worldwide yeah I mean I think you've got that you've got the rep for going hard and drinking a lot yeah but in an overly bad way I mean I worked at a casino and at the end of a big night uh, especially when there's sport on like Six Nations or so. Um, the Irish people will still be there at five, like five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, you know. Yeah. But uh, it wasn't overly troublesome or anything like that. It wasn't anything different in comparison. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of good to know, I guess. Um, the uh, Australians drink a hell of a lot too, though. It's uh, it's quite. I I I had a one time I was in Barcelona and I met this Australian guy, and he attempted to drink me under the table and when I say attempted he succeeded I, I could not keep up with this guy at all and his like physical makeup was like he was skinnier than me and it was like he was just sinking pints and they just did nothing to him and it was pretty incredible so I took that to be I, I just said all Australians are like that because um I had never met one before but uh I don't know if this is like an offensive thing to say or not, but like a lot of people in Ireland grew up watching Home and Away, and so our image of Australia is that it's just 
a series of surf shops and really attractive people and lots and lots of drama and stuff. So I Yeah, not not particularly. <laughs> I mean, maybe the attractive people. I think Australia's got some pretty attractive people, but then I think you can say that about any country in the world, to be honest. So, yeah, um, yeah. it's often when you go to another country, like the average person in that country might appear overly attractive to you as well, just because there's a level of exotic sort of look about it or something like that. Um, I uh, I've been so you're like a huge football fan, right? Yeah, fairly big. You support Norwich and you support an Australian club too, don't you? Uh, I mean, I follow Perth Glory, which is my local team, but not not specifically. So. Right. Um, how does that? When you lived in Australia, how did you keep up with football? Because obviously, you're like between eight or twelve hours ahead, depending on the time zone and what time of year it is. Um, was that like a huge challenge to do? Uh, well, uh, being from the West Coast, uh, I had the the easier end of the time zones, you'd say. It would be uh, seven or eight hours, depending on daylight savings. Yeah, yeah. So it would mean that on an atypical Saturday, the early game would start at around about 8.30, followed by the normal games would start at 11 o'clock, and then the late game would be about 2 o'clock in the morning. Jeez. So... Sometimes it works in your favour. Like I came over to Europe, and it was almost weird having them in the middle of the day because yeah. I was busy in the middle of the day. Whereas before, uh, not that I intensely watch football every weekend, but you know, if you wanted to watch football, you'd be free in the evening, unless you were out or something. Um, be free in the evening just to watch it, and it would be a bit more. Uh, yeah, it's different, but uh, especially with the time zones that I was presented with, it was it was manageable. Yeah, you could still sit down in an evening, and I mean, I'm not an early, uh, I'm not that kind of person who goes to bed early. So for me, staying up to one to watch the three o'clock kickoffs as they would be um, wasn't too much of a stretch. I um I went to Singapore last year, uh, or sorry, the year before last. Now that it's 2018, um and basically football just stopped existing for me while I was there. I, I just I couldn't keep up with the fact that like the three o'clock kickoffs were happening at eleven at night and like I'd be like I'd be out in a pub and there'd be football on and I'd be like pissed and this was like live English Premier League football and I was just like, Oh what the fuck? I forgot that that existed. I can't I think I I think I was in Singapore for fifteen days and when I came back like the league table just looked completely foreign to me. I was like, what the hell? I forgot that all of this happened so um, yeah, I, it's it, it's really like when you're used to something and then it changes, that can be so like weird uh, with time zones and stuff like that. But um, one thing that uh, a lot of Australian people say on the internet is that the internet, the quality of internet in Australia is terrible and that nothing is available, like everything is banned, Netflix doesn't exist. I think it does now, but it used to not. Um, was that your experience or is that like an over-exaggeration by the Reddit community or... Um, I think Australia's internet in general is pretty bad. Mm. Uh, um, I, I couldn't quote any stats or anything to you apart from like personal. I personally, before we got the um, NBN, which was the government uh, initiative, uh, national broadband network, mm. um, my speeds at my house <clears throat> were a maximum of, uh, let's think, 
Um, I think it would have been about, it would have been one megabyte download, so about 10 megabits. That would have been my, about my maximum where I was, and I was in a fairly central-ish suburban area. Jesus. Uh, but now, I think it depends, because I've come here to Germany, and currently the house I'm in is also that same speed, and I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure if it's just the box or the location of the house, but I think generally Australia's internet is pretty average, mm. and a lot of countries are better, um, but with the new MBN, although that has, the the government program hasn't worked, as they've, they've kind of skipped out and cheaped out in a few parts, so it's really not... Yeah, they do that. It's not like a, a big long-term, the Australia's internet is now fantastic. It's more like a, a band-aid on a wound that's going to be reset <laughs> in about five five years. When, But, you know, um, I think it's manageable, to be honest. I don't think it's like... Personally, for me, I mean, I, I use the internet quite a lot, and I I don't think you can notice the difference unless you're downloading when you pass, like, 20 megabits. Oh, but yeah. this is my personal opinion. I certainly noticed the difference when you were trying to quickscope on Modern Warfare 2 with that one megabyte download from across the world. <laughs> that yeah. It didn't go that well. <laughs> that, that's more lag, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, to, to get to the uh, super interesting stuff, how did you make your way to Germany? Because this is something I actually don't know, and I'm really fascinated by what you're doing with your life uh, on the face of it. So how did you find your way over there? Um... Well, it was a it was a trip that I'd planned for probably about a year and a half before. Um, I I kind of I've always liked Germany. Um, when I when I was growing up in England, my mum's boyfriend at the time was German. Um, right. As a result, I came to the country a lot as a little kid. I have this lovely little photo of me about two or three years old, going down a slide holding a big German flag. Wow. So I quite liked the country and always liked, I always just had this little attraction to the country because of the good times I had when I was a kid. Um, so I was, was finishing my degree over in Australia and I, I didn't, I didn't have the urge and to be honest, I still don't have the urge to jump into full time work like some people do. So I just figured I'd ex expand my horizons a bit and, go traveling and go live somewhere new because, uh, in my opinion, new experiences in new countries lead to a deeper meaning, like you get a deeper understanding of people and what life's like to live, uh, especially in a country where English isn't the primary language. Yeah. Uh, Do you speak any German? Yeah, I, I learned for a bit. I learned for a year before I came and since I've come here, I've uh, obviously been improving and improving, although I haven't had actual lessons since I've been over here. But just with talking it every day, you get more comfortable and understand a bit more. Yeah, definitely. I, I did it. I did German for three years in school, and I couldn't even construct a fucking sentence, apart from, uh, uh, darf ich bitte auf der Toilette, I think. I don't know if that's even right, but that's the only thing that I know how to say in German. So. May I please use the toilet? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't my strongest class. <laughs> and German's a hard language. Um, but no, I, I ended up coming to Germany. It was a, it was a mix-up to me between Germany and Sweden, and I, I came here. Uh, I I travelled around the country. I came here without a plan, really. I travelled around the country for a month, uh, just looking to find my favourite city to live in. I didn't have a plan. I didn't know where I was going to live. Um, and I ended up settling down in Freiburg, Germany, which is 
southwest, pretty much as southwest as you can get in Germany. Uh, pretty much straight on the French border. I'm like half an hour away from the French border and about 40 minutes away from the Swiss border in Basel. So um, it's right down in the southwest, surrounded by the forest, and it's beautiful. I love it. so. That sounds awesome. Did you do that completely by yourself? Yeah, the, the travel was by myself, yeah. Wow. How did you find that? Uh, I, I love traveling by myself, to be honest. I mean, I think I'm... I think I'm a fairly independent person in general. Um, it certainly so, sounds that way. So, yeah, so for me, traveling, it's like... If I was traveling with someone and they wanted to do something and I wanted to do something else, it would it would slightly annoy me if I had to do the thing that I didn't want to do. So, and for me, traveling alone, you especially when you're, like, backpacking and at hostels, there's always friends. There's always people that want to do things and meet up. You're never short of meeting people. Uh, and I think it really allows you to do what you want to do and be social or not be social. just gives you the f- personal freedom to experience the country how you want. Yeah, that's awesome. It's something that I think that I'd like to do, but I'm very introverted and I, I have this real problem of um, just uh, diverting to my comfort zone immediately. So I, like, if, if I were to travel around Germany, I would end up eating in like a different McDonald's in every city you know what I mean like I'd never actually go and try the new things because it's not comfortable for me to do that and um that's always kind of pushed me away from traveling by myself but I used to go and um like if I'm visiting friends in other countries because I have plenty of friends who live in on mainland Europe um I love the getting there part of it by myself like I love being in airports by myself and being on the plane and getting to like just do all of these little things like read books and things like that it's really good to have that time but as for like sightseeing and all of that I can just never I don't know I can never bring myself to do it alone because it's just like I don't know I I think like maybe on some level it actually just doesn't really interest me that much like I like having a good Instagram picture but you know I could have just taken that off Google Images from someone who's taken a much better photo than I could of a really nice temple or whatever you know yeah I mean I, I see it in the same way as if you've gone to an art gallery with a friend or like a few friends like depending on who you're with some people might just rush through it and be through the whole art gallery in 20 minutes and there might be another one of your friends who spends two hours in an art gallery yeah for me if you're traveling in a big group like that, you're always going to be limited. Uh, I wouldn't say restricted compared to other people, but like what you can do with your time is limited compared with other people. And when you're traveling by yourself, you don't have that commitment to someone else or other people, so you can really experience it. Yeah, yeah. My personal preference, anyway. Uh, Have you plans to go other places in Europe? Um, Since I've been here, which is... Uh, I came here last, I came to my travel last June and started living here in Freiburg at the end of July. I've been to Istanbul. Oh, nice. Uh, I've been back home to the UK to visit my family. And I've been to Prague and Nice and Monaco. Prague is absolutely awesome. Um, I went there when I was a teenager and it's one of the coolest cities I've been to. I'm actually going to go back there pretty soon. Um, it's the only thing is it's like weirdly become very expensive to go there over the last few months I've noticed but um, yeah I'm really looking forward to going back there when I'm 
finally the legal age to drink when I wasn't the last time. And there's so many like really nice beers and pubs and everything that I just didn't get to experience as a teenager. Cheapest beer in the world, that's for sure. Really, that that is that is fantastic. <laughs> um, it is. I was going to ask you something that uh, one of my friends actually suggested that it would be like almost irresponsible of me to not ask a journalist from Australia living in Germany what they think of this. And I understand if like you haven't committed to an opinion because maybe you haven't been in Germany that long. But um, one of the main talking points about Germany online is the refugee crisis. And I guess coming from Australia like Australia is so far away from everywhere you probably wouldn't have like a large influx of refugees like certainly not crisis levels um do you have any have you made any observations or anything about the refugee crisis in in Freiburg has it hit there like is there is there any like social segregation or any um like weird sort of um changes in the atmosphere or anything like that like is that something that you've seen at all no, like, of course, of co like I, I feel like I would have been a, a privileged position almost coming from Australia, where immigration and the, refu the refugees do come to Australia, and uh, policy in Australia for the past twelve years or so has been that any any asylum seekers looking to get into Australia, like going there illegally by boat, have been. Uh, shipped off and sent to detention centers on uh, different Pacific islands, which aren't even, uh, sorry, the one would be Australian owned and the other, Nauru, is just a separate country which houses this big detention center. And personally, uh, from what I hear and from what I see, the conditions, Australia is a big country um, and these people in these camps often stay there for years and years and years just waiting for their application to get processed. Um, so for me, I've always had this kind of like, you know, I, I wish they were treated better. I wish they were let into Australia. But coming to Germany, I feel like I was in a bit more of a real position because I came here also as someone who couldn't speak the language fantastically. Obviously, I, I didn't leave a one-torn country and I wasn't a refugee. But uh, I, I can see I can see the hardships faced by refugees coming to a country where they don't know a language, don't know the culture. Um, and when you don't know all these things, you stick to what you know, right? Like, yeah. me coming here, I don't know German. I'm working in an Irish pub, you know. I, oh, wow. I'm going to surround myself with people that speak English and know what I do, and it's the same for anything else. I had, when I first came here, I had a Syrian roommate who came here um, as a refugee and is studying to be a doctor. Nicest guy you'd ever meet. Like he couldn't speak much English, and my German was still pretty average. So there was a definite communication barrier. Mm -hmm. um, but he invited me out. We went out a few times, played football with all his friends. He had a big meal, like big meals of all his uh, friends that came over, other doctor friends, and you know the most like nicest person you ever meet. And um, and I think the German people. I think it's important to say also that in this period, in this part of Germany, the refugee crisis hasn't, or crisis in inverted commas, hasn't been, or the influx of migrants hasn't been so big as, say, somewhere like uh, Saxony in the east or East Germany. Yeah. Seeing the AfD um, get a lot of votes and support. But I see a lot of support, and 
I see a lot of people uh, supporting refugees and welcoming them in. Like my housemate at the moment uh, volunteers to teach Germans with refugees um, at a little uh, little school, little place in the middle of the city. Um, just out of their spare time, does it to refugees to help them integrate. And but no, I don't. I don't think there's a crisis. I think. I think at the end of the day, you can. You can bring like the numbers sound high when you put them on pieces of paper. When you you compare them to the actual population of people, and yeah, I don't think it's a crisis at all, to be honest. Yeah, uh, it's one of those but, things that um, <clears throat> I, for whatever reason, I, I've fallen into a lot of these wormholes on YouTube. You know, when you start clicking videos and like you see the title of something, and you're like. I know that I will be a more unhappy person after I've watched this video, but I want to click it just to make sure that I'm right about that. So, um, I've, uh, like, I, I, I just see these clickbaity things about Germany and refugee crisis, and, like, the, the same thing is happening with Sweden. And, uh, like, there's so much scaremongering, and, like, it actually is scaremongering. Um, so I don't know what the official numbers are, and I know that the numbers of refugees is actually a disputed figure, but there's been at least 500,000 uh, refugees um, entered into Germany in 2017. And if you listen to some people, it, it's it's like this is the end of the world and the end of the West. Like a really popular thing that people love to say is this is how the West will die. Um, there's there's no way that the culture will be able to withstand all of these Muslims because they have different uh, cultural leanings and that they're invoking Sharia law in every town that they come into. And I've, I have spoken to people from Germany and, and this is like not their experience and obviously it's not your experience either and it's just really strange to me that this is a thing that people who've never been to Germany are just super focused on this huge threat to German culture uh, it's just such a weird time to like consume media I guess uh, it, it, is, I, it is a lot of fear-mongering and scare-mongering and people take it out of context and over-exaggerate things I mean, we've seen so many examples of this, even non-refugee related with things like UKIP and all the money promised to the NHS. And uh, then as soon as they get out of the EU, it's just revealed they were empty promises. Um, I mean, I don't know. I used, when I travel, I mean, I've traveled around Germany. I've been to a few cities. Um, you can definitely notice like a Turkish population. But I mean, they all speak better German than me, yeah. <laughs> you know. They're all, they're all Germans. They're not even like the Turkish ancestry with the Germans, and they've brought their home culture and their whole thing to Germany, which is fantastic. I mean, and when you think of the classic Döner kebab, I mean, I've been to Istanbul, I've been to Germany. The better kebabs are here by absolute mile. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't really think it at all. I you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that think people are people, and if you can't if you can't love your same people, religion is religion, right? Like, mm. yeah, I don't know. It's a it's, complicated issue, but in in summary, I think it's all a bit exaggerated, and I haven't really seen all I've seen is support towards refugees, really, and the migrant population here. I haven't seen any indication of like overhousing or like people's like crammed into places. Um, I'm not sure if there's like um uh. 
I don't want to say camp, but I can't think of another word, like a, a place where refugees are coming in to a specific accommodation just for them. I believe there's one or two around here, mm-hmm. but there's never been any, like, never heard anything bad about them or anything. And Freiburg is one of the hardest places in Germany to find accommodation and also one of the most expensive. So wow. it's, it's be obvious that those things would exist. But no, in overall summary, I haven't, uh, there's no, no, no threat of a, the collapse of a Western civilization. I don't think. I think it's all a bit over exaggerated. Yeah, like there were the the horrendous events in Cologne in uh, on, on New Year's Eve um, last year, uh, where there were like mass sexual assaults in public um, by seemingly a migrant population. Um, I guess that kind of started everything. And Even that, though, was, I think it was proved to be over-exaggerated, or some part of it was exaggerated or taken out of um, context. Um, do you have any, like, as, as an actual journalist, right, one, one of the main things that people say who are, who are uh, in complete belief that the Muslims are taking over Europe, basically, um, and they say that the mainstream media is hiding this because it's, an inconvenient truth because of political correctness, because they don't want people to know and stuff. Do you have any, like, as a journalist, do you believe that that is probable? Like, obviously it is possible, but, like, is it likely that the media would just silence or, or censor an entire thing? Um, like, like it, so it seems totally counterintuitive to me that if the media... If journalists and investigative journalists and people who report on facts were aware of an existential threat, why would they hide it? Like, what would be the purpose of concealing that threat? You know what I mean? I Again, I think that's like... With mainstream media, I mean, obviously you're going to get right-wing publications and right-wing people that want to present their facts in a way... It's all about how you present stuff, right? Like... Um, uh, like that's what I think the news has been trying to do. There's been a big, uh, big thing with like not trying to produce. Ah, uh, sorry. Um, with news organisations not naming, uh, for example, suicide bombers or mm-hmm. linked to terrorist attacks because it promotes that same kind of thing as they did with suicides. If there's a suicide, it will be reported as an accident, or it won't actually be said it was a suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, in the news, I, 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 as as someone who's worked in the industry, I, I don't think there's that. I think news, in the end of the day, focuses on the truth and has facts presented to us. And it's if it's facts that come from an uncredible source or, you know, facts that aren't isn't news, then it won't get reported. But I don't think there's this going to be overall bias of the whole media. Every media that isn't super right wing going, look, we know there's a massive problem, but we're just not going to report on it. Like that just doesn't happen. And I think if there was, if there was this big conspiracy, you wouldn't have heard about the things in Cologne or, you know, there'd be so many things that just didn't get reported on. Like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's. I think it's a bit, just a bit crap. And I think if the media wants to report on something, they will, and they have that have the right. Not the right. They have the. It's their job to report news, and yeah. make them aware of stuff. And I don't think they'd hide things from the public. It feels like um, 
obviously in this era, the media has had to adapt to like a, a click-friendly kind of um, news cycle, and it feels to me intuitive to say that European media agencies would, if there were these grisly, dark stories, it would make a lot more sense for them to actually report them. Uh, like, <clears throat> completely irrespective of a, a moral and ethical perspective on journalism, just for clicks to suit their business model, it would make sense to report the bad stories because that's what sells, you know what I mean? In my, in my first, one of my first classes at university, the whole lesson topic was on the, the news is, is always a battle between what people need to see and what people want to see. Mm. You can have, you can have a, a piece of news which is about how the government is abandoning its climate change policy, for example, and that's what people need to see and need to read. But if you post that at the same time as an article saying, look what Kylie Jenner wore to the Met Ball last night, what will get more clicks and what will get more, what will generate more income for the company? And that's, that's the problem. It's the problem with journalism at the moment, because as you said, it is very click focused because a lot of the news, the, all the newspaper revenues gone down the drain, it's non-existent, mm -hmm. and so people don't pay for news online. I mean, I don't pay for news online. I, I don't know if you pay for news online, but... I certainly don't. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's it's this money hole, which then... Yeah, there's a big money hole, which then leads to less journalists, less photographers, less staff in general, which then proceeds to less being able to get covered and less quality news results. And then people get angry at the news because it's less quality. It's this, it's this constant cycle that will have to fix itself soon, otherwise people are going to lose faith in the media. And I, I talk to people here, and I, you know, some people you talk to just don't believe in the media anymore. Yeah. And I, I don't believe that for a second. I still obviously believe in the media, but you know, you get people that go, oh, BBC News won't report on this because it doesn't do this, or like. You know, people don't believe that the news wants. They've got like the news got some agenda or something, but or well, they won't report on this because they don't want to. And it's it's probably not the case at all. It's probably because they've got five journalists who are like off their feet doing things that's going to get the company, um, you know, profit. I mean, when people say to me like, oh, they got a Buzzfeed for their news, it it just it, it annoys me. <laughs> Buzzfeed is. Is where good journalists go to die, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I've I've long been an arguer that like BuzzFeed is killing the world. Even like even before they became a <clears throat> quote unquote news company, um, I, like they were still the worst fucking website out there. Like all of their articles, are, they they weren't even articles. They were listicles, pictures with like four words written underneath them, and it's like. 43 ways that you can construct a webcam using only balloons or you know, just, just like complete fucking bullshit and then all of a sudden they're publishing some dossier from a, an intelligence agent about Donald Trump and prostitutes pissing on a bed in Russia that Obama slept in and it's just like how like you could not explain this to, to someone who was frozen in time in the year 1995 or something like it, it's such a, a bastardization of of mainstream news like it's it's insane but perhaps that's where that's where the direction is maybe maybe all these clicks from buzzfeed will get buzzfeed as it's already grown as massively as a business maybe it will continue to grow as a business to a point where 
it gets such a sustainable revenue, it actually becomes a legitimate source for news. You know, it's highly possible because... That's true, yeah. I can see in... I, I think I'd say now, BuzzFeed gets a lot more hits than... I don't want to say the BBC because I don't want to say... That, I don't want to think that's be true, but, like... Well, they they probably are one of the leading news companies in the world right now in terms some of, kind of clicks and traffic. Some kind of, like, mid-range news agency that works hard to produce quality content. I, I imagine that BuzzFeed gets more revenue from listicles, which yeah. is it's horrible, but, you know, maybe it'll go full circle in 10 years and BuzzFeed will be where good journalists go to be better journalists rather than what it is at the moment. But, no, yeah, it's it's a very complicated system with journalism at the moment. And when I got into... when I, I've always wanted to be a journalist, like, ever since I was 12. And uh, people have incredible stories that need to be told and people want to hear these incredible stories, and people have the need the right, deserve the right. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but people need to know what's going on around them, right? Good or bad, yeah. ugly, fantastic. If if you didn't know what was happening in your town, I mean, I have this kind of problem now. I all the websites coming here in Freiburg, I want to see what's going on. It's all, but it's all in German, you know. It's and for me, it's kind of hard to understand. Mm. So I feel like I'm kind of like not in touch with Freiburg compared to back home where I'm very like, oh, this happened then. Uh, I know what happens. I, if anything happens in Perth, I, I get a hold of it through Facebook or through Twitter or something. Yeah. But people have that right where they need to know the news. And it's, it's, I think it's disappointing when people have this very anti-news um, stance because people need to put more trust into quality news organisations like BBC and you know other things like that, Al Jazeera, etc. The great thing <clears throat> about BBC is that Liberals, and, well, I guess not liberals because BBC is the UK, but but um, liberal Democrats and uh, conservative voters both claim bias from the BBC. So like that means they're probably doing something right uh, if both sets on the opposite sides of the spectrum are both claiming that the BBC is biased against them. Like that surely means that they are probably one of the more level. Uh, like reporting agencies out there. Um, sorry, do you mean Lib Democrats or Labour? Uh, yeah, Labour. Well, well, yeah. What what I meant was people on the left in the UK, really. Um, like just people who are of a liberal mentality in general um, will say things about the BBC, like that they they underreport um, the things that the Tories are. Uh, have incorporated into their budget that is quite clearly not political expenditure and stuff like that, or they will say that um, they underreport stories that are anti uh, or Islamophobic and things like that. They'll say that um, hate crimes are underreported by BBC, where um, Tories or people who vote Conservative will say that the BBC overreports. Uh, incidents about Islamophobia, but under-reports incidents where Muslims commit crimes and things like that. So you just end up with this vicious cycle of two sets of people being outraged that their voice isn't the one that's being spread across the front pages. Mm. I, I think it's important to note as well. I mean, I just I just talked about how everyone's got to have faith in the news, but I think it is also important to know the news. Mm -hmm. uh, in Australia, there's a there's a lot of papers which have done by Rupert Murdoch and by other big companies like Fairfax Media, for example. Um, 
and it's it's been well, well it's been publicised well that the Murdoch papers, for example, the Australian, and I want to say the Sydney Morning Herald as well, but I'm not 100% on that. Um, have a more right wing, not overly so, of course, but like have a more right wing focus and will have more stories. I think it's important for people to look at, not look at a news agency and be like, whatever they say is true. You've got to, you've got to look at this. You've got to, even if I see something from uh, Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever his name is, you know. I saw someone on Reddit call him YOLO Minneapolis the other day, and that's that's um, <laughs> that's all I will ever refer to him as from now on. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if you see something from him, like news based on, like, you know, even if you click on it, you read it, you go, okay, maybe this is a thing, but this guy has an obvious bias to bring this into light by however he means, right? It's, yeah, you've got to look at it that way. Um, there's always going to be bias. There's no, I think to expect anything to be completely unbiased is, I think it's unrealistic, really. Yeah, um, right. And I'm kind of going against my old point or my last point, but um, you've got to look at the news and not see and not yeah you've got to like read the read the words and not just take them at face value and be like this is absolutely correct. You, there's other factors that have got to come into it, you know. And I think that's that's part of what you said about the like, Islamophobia. People will click on something by like I don't know Britain's United Party and be like this is true. I've seen this share exactly you know and it just it might be some parts of it might be true but some parts of it might not be true you know you've got to take it you've got to really think about the news and how you digest your news in this day and age and really be clued in but i think it's with the internet and the amount of knowledge that people have it's it's working towards it do you think um that there's kind of a possible antidote to the echo chamber thinking like that there's just I don't like the USA is just a great example of a country that is is plagued by like like it's actual like epidemic levels of partisanship and um like there's such little civil discourse left when it comes to uh the Republicans and the liberals in America and it's just I don't know it, it's really hard to obviously I don't live there I've never been there I I don't assume that the vitriol that we see online is represented that often in real life between ordinary citizens in America. But it's really hard for any issue now to not be made a right versus left thing and ultimately like a racist versus non-racist thing. Even if it has nothing to do with race, everything gets dragged into some realm where it's like you can tar it with badness and definitively say, oh, this is bad because of this reason. Like Donald Trump <clears throat> just said that... Uh, we don't want people from shithole countries coming in and people are saying like oh donald trump is a racist and that's that and it's like that's not actually a racist comment it's a really fucking stupid thing to say and he shouldn't have said it but like you can't say that he's racist because like in instead of like like saying oh he's racist get him out of the white house is such a cop out when he said something that is completely unpresidential um, it's completely against the tone that someone leading the country should be setting. It's just not a thing you would want a democratically elected leader to be presenting. It's a horrible like portrayal of a message. But you can't just say, oh, it's racist, get rid of him. You know what I mean? Like There's such little pushback in any meaningful sense 
Like no one actually wants to talk about policy or procedure. People just want to point fingers and say racist, sexist, get them out because ultimately we don't like them. And that in itself is undemocratic as well. Um, I, like, I, yeah, I'm kind of, this is a, the most long-winded question I've ever asked. This is basically a thesis that I'm telling you. Um, do you think there's anything the media can do to help that? Like, is there, is it possible that the media could, like, educate people on how to, like, even if it's just to further their own agenda, like, how to actually fight things that they don't like instead of just sitting back and pointing fingers? Um, difficult question, really. Yeah, uh, it, it was essentially a novel or, <laughs> that I just wrote. Uh, it's it's uh, just like I, I look at um, I look at like the, the pushback against the New York Times. I don't know that the New York Times can do anything to convince the people who will forever view it as fake news. There, there's nothing they can do to say, all right, here here's some fair and balanced reporting. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I think Donald Trump in himself is just a, a different, a different kettle of fish. Like you can talk about American news policies, Donald Trump, and it's just completely different to say Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, or um, Bill Shorten, Malcolm Turnbull, Australia, whatever. Um, I'm afraid that we're headed in that direction, though, over here. I don't think to that level. I, I think, I mean, maybe if Boris Johnson or some idiot gets elected like Trump in the UK, perhaps. But I think the whole witch hunt with Trump is... I mean, I kind of admire, I kind of admire not his policies or who he is as a person, but how he manipulates the media and people's perception of the media to suit him. Yeah, I, me too. I, it's a real skill. Like, it's a genuine talent. Yeah. But in terms of, like, changing, especially Americans, people, like, opinion, educating them, like, I saw so many... I think people have been a lot more clued into politics now that Trump is president, to be honest, because I feel like people have, people now, I'd say, oh, well, this is just a theory, I'd say people, especially Americans, have a lot more understanding of how their political system works because they wanted to know how Donald Trump became president. Yeah, that's true, but then they want to get Oprah now <laughs> instead, and it's just... Yeah. I don't know, America's America, right? But, it's crazy, though, isn't it? Like, it's... Oh, man, I can't... Like, there's just no way that you can be like, oh, yeah, good, well, they've had the... They've done the reality uh, TV experiment with the president, and now they need... Oh, it's Oprah, all oh, right. Like, like you guys are screwed. Like, just Godspeed, good riddance. Mm. It's crazy. I don't mean good riddance to the whole country. I mean, just seriously fucking sort yourselves out with that. Like, it, it's... It, it surely we can't have Donald Trump and Oprah debating on TV about the presidency, right? Like th this is something that if you were to say to someone ten years ago, Donald Trump and Oprah are having a debate on TV, you'd be like, "Oh, what's it about? The book, The Secret?" <laughs> I don't know. Mm. It's just so. Um, I'm gonna have to head in five minutes or so. That's cool. Um, Any last questions you want to ask me? Yeah, what's your favorite video game? My favorite video game of all time or right now? Uh, what's the one that you're playing the most right now? Uh, I play three games pretty much at the moment. No, three games? Two games. I play StarCraft 2. I play Football Manager 2018. Did and you? right now, I'm playing a bit of They Are Billions. I don't actually know that. I, I'm playing... I, I've, I've racked up, like, I think 300 hours on Football Manager 18 already. Um, 
I'm absolutely addicted to the game, but I what what team do you manage on it? At the moment, I'm with Pep Glory. Oh wow, how's that going for you? I just started. I'm just. I think I'm one game into the new season. Oh wow. I had. I, I'm one of those people that manage from very low levels. So I started off with one of like the the state level teams to where I'm from, um, and then got sacked and then went for another state level team and got then went up to Perth Glory. But wow. yeah, last time I went to Perth Glory, like, the A League rules are a bit trash. So uh, um, yeah. yeah, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, I never do uh, I never do MLS and I never do A League because I just don't really understand what's going on there. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty weird. Um, I always go for the Premier League, and just you basically just generate so much money that it's actually impossible to fail. Like it's it's really weird, and it gets more and more every year. Like I'm with Leicester now. I'm in the year 2022, I think, and my transfer budget is 395 million. Wow. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But like, I won't spend that all. I'll spend like seven million on players that I'm gonna sell for. A combined total of 250 million in three years. Like I just, I really play the long game, and ultimately for me, it's it's a balance sheet simulator, and, mm. uh, it's, which is the opposite of how I handle my finances in real life. Unfortunately, um, you, uh, you you uh, you mentioned StarCraft, right? I've never played that. Um, I'm a huge Age of Empires 2 fan. Have you ever played that? Mm, possibly when I was very young, but I never really touched Age of Empires. Wow. I touched Age of Mythology, Rise of Nations when I was younger. Those are like my first real-time strategies I ever got into. Um, um, how does StarCraft 2 compare with Age of Mythology? Are they similar in any way? I mean, the whole premise of real-time strategies is pretty similar, right? You've got your resources, you've got to build your armies, you've got to go crush the other guy. Mm-hmm. But StarCraft is easily the most refined and competitive and the best it's the best rts still on the market uh, i think it will be for a while you know and the only other competitor is like warcraft 3 which is, again is another blizzard game but it's from like 2005 and it's a bit more it's a bit more like micro orientated with starcraft I, I for me starcraft's the perfect beautiful game i could i almost play it every day i'm it's the more you play the more addicted you get to it and the more you realize you'll never be good at it <laughs> yeah um, I, I've been playing Age of Empires 2 for 20 years, and I will just not have you say that StarCraft 2 is the best RTS game out there, because Age of Empires 2 is, and uh, neither of us have played the other game, but we both think that we're both right, so... But on a competitive level. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there is competitive AoE 2. Um, there are still tournaments where the, the cash prize is, like, thousands of dollars and stuff, but... Yeah, I've I've looked at StarCraft and they have like they fill arenas with people spectating, people playing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think in any RTS, that's the beautiful thing about RTS is you can take it to such a level where everything is refined and beautiful, and there's always a way to get better. There's yeah. always a way to get better, and that's what I love about it. You can win 20 games in a row and be like, I'm the best player ever, and then get absolutely wrecked by someone. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a piece of shit for the next two hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, one last question. Uh, is there such a thing as a kangaroo kebab, and have you ever eaten one? That's two questions. I have never heard of it, but if there is, I'd love to eat it, because kangaroo meat is probably one of my favorite meats in the world. That's crazy. 
I don't know yeah. why that's crazy. It makes perfect sense. Well, like, why wouldn't people eat kangaroos? And yet, I just think the thought of eating a kangaroo is insane. It's I think it's it's fairly popular in Australia. Hmm. Uh, it's not like not like an easy replacement for beef. It's not like all the beef is replaced by kangaroo. But if you want some, you can easily kind of buy some barbecue it or you know cook it how you like but it's, it's really good mate i would recommend to anyone who wants to try it to try it maybe i should i don't know if you can get it here though um well uh thanks a lot for your time uh this was really fun we should do it again sometime yeah no worries thanks for having me on <laughs> yeah no worries